and welcome to Wellbeing for Dog Groomers, the podcast. My name is Carla. I have been a dog groomer since 2014. Over time, be it before an exam, at the side of a competition ring or online, I have had many a quiet chat with fellow dog groomers who, like myself, struggle at times to balance life, work and maintaining a healthy well-being. My aim is to talk to both professional dog groomers and mental health professionals to help us understand what triggers stress and anxiety within our industry, why so many of us struggle with our mental health and what we can do to help ourselves. I also want to share stories and handy tips to make life in the salon easier. I am not a professional in mental health and I am not qualified or trained to give advice in this area. I am however interested in mental health and what effects our work can have on our well-being and finding ways to help. So, whether you are a brand new groomer or you have been at it for decades, whether you struggle with your mental health or work with a groomer who does, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome to Wellbeing for Dog Groomers, the podcast. This week I'm talking to Kelly Ceccarelli, founder of You Can Too Therapy. I'm talking to her about one of the types of therapy that she offers, Compassionate Inquiry. I first heard about Compassionate Inquiry when listening to Fern Cotton's Happy Place podcast. Fern was interviewing Gabor Mate, who invented Compassionate Inquiry. He is such a fascinating man and I highly recommend that you look him up. I have since heard him on podcasts such as Mad World by Bryony Gordon and on Diary of a CEO. I will put all of these links as well as all of Kelly's details in the show notes. Kelly actually trained with Gabor Mate and so she is here today to help us understand what trauma is, how it affects us mentally and physically and to explain what compassionate inquiry is and how it works. We also cover the topics of addiction, finding your authentic self and the struggles of parenting. So let's get straight to the interview. I just love these kinds of deep conversations that really get you thinking. So I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. Let's go. Hi Kelly, welcome to Wellbeing for Dog Groomers, the podcast. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. And I'm not alone. I'm here with Mika, okay. who is my dog. One of my dogs. I've got two. Two dogs, two cats, two guinea pigs, two oh. children, one husband. That's enough. But yeah, I've got my dog Mika with me. <laughs> so um, can you introduce yourself a bit and tell us about the therapies that you offer and why you decided to become a therapist? Yeah, of course. Gosh, I mean, how long have you got? But first of all, thank you so much for having I was going to say me, but it's us, isn't it? It's me and yep. Mika. Um, <laughs> thank you for having us on. I'm really excited to talk about all of this. It's it's a huge privilege. So thank you oh, very much. I'm excited too. <laughs> um, and you want me to talk about me. So, yep. I mean, I'm a talker. So rein me in if you need to, right? But yeah, my name's Kelly and I'm an animal lover, right? First and foremost, I was actually yep. a veterinary nurse for 12 years. Oh. before yeah I changed careers and I worked in the pet food industry for 15 years so animals have always been a massive part of my life and I just want to say that because obviously I know a lot of your listeners are very much animal lovers as well yeah. so I really I understand that animal that human to animal bond very well animals I think are, are so important I actually owe them an awful lot they've always yeah. been there for me uh, when I've needed them so yeah I've always loved animals but then why did I start working in this therapy healing world? And the short answer is, I guess, that I'm a very sensitive person. I feel things so easily, which can be a blessing, but also a curse. I like to think of it more as a blessing. And people have always talked to me very openly 
Um, whenever people meet me, they tend to share things and always have done, even since I was really small. Like I remember listening to people's stories. And yeah. I've always had this sense of I need to be there to listen to people and to help them. But I've never really, it took me a long time to get the courage to make that change and change from a career that was very stable to something extremely new later in life. But I couldn't ignore the the voices in my head, went for it and retrained. And now I've got my own You Can Too Therapy business. And, and I, I'm just so happy and I'm so privileged to be helping so many people because there's a lot of people out there in pain that are struggling. So what, what a wonderful job I have. And what sorts of therapies do you work with? Yeah, I mean, quite a few. But I know that when you contacted me, you were specifically interested in compassionate inquiry which is one modality but I use compassionate inquiry in conjunction with many others so um, EMDR which is great for trauma which we'll talk about today Uh, CBT as well although I have to say it's not my favorite Uh, clinical hypnotherapy and somatic therapies polyvagal stuff and compassionate inquiry which is for sure my favorite favorite modality because it's just so effective and so beautiful to use brilliant so let's get on to that then so compassionate inquiry so can you tell us a bit about Gabor Mate and and his theory and how it was created the uh, compassionate inquiry and what, what it's about really and what a guy I mean I'm really again I've said privileged words so many times but I'm very honored to work with him for uh for the last couple of years and he he actually created compassionate inquiry out of it from accident and, and a need really so I don't know how much you know about him but for any listeners that don't know a lot he is actually a GP who's a practicing doctor in Canada mm-hmm. and worked mainly in the east side of Vancouver which is quite a it's not the most affluent area of Vancouver shall we say and he was working with a lot of people that were really really struggling with physical illness and and also noticed that they were bringing they were coming in with not just physical illness, but also mental health illnesses as well. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that there was a deeply unconscious component, like he, it, that people weren't aware of what was going on, but it was quite clear to him what was going on. And he realised that he had a responsibility that when he was dealing with their physical illnesses, that actually there were emotional issues that needed tending to as well. And that the medical world that he was working in was a bit lost, that there wasn't really any clear way of doing that um okay so he talks a bit about how if he had to refer someone to a gynecologist or a neurologist or a cardiologist he always had a specialist that he could refer people to but when it came to emotional issues before he did his training he didn't have anyone that he could refer to because at the time there was only really psychiatrists right okay and and he recognized that psychiatry training although very good and well-intentioned when it comes to when it came to his clients' needs, it was so much more about emotional issues uh, yeah. that were causing the illnesses, the physical illnesses. It, they weren't really the right option, um, okay. and the psychotherapists that were an option, people had to pay money, and these people in the east side of Vancouver didn't have money to pay. No. So he started creating this technique called compassionate inquiry and counselling people out of need, really, and started researching how to do it and and then became so good at it and be, and started writing all these books that some of your listeners may have heard of like the myth of normal and um hungry realm of hungry ghosts i've got some here yeah so you've got yeah when the body says no is another one that people might have heard of they're amazing amazing books and he's i mean he's just a spectacular man 
his work is very much focused on trauma, very much focused on trauma and the impact of trauma between with disease, but also on addiction and stress and childhood development and how trauma is, is linked to those things. While we're on the trauma subject, how do you describe trauma? And um, I know quite often it can be really misunderstood with what trauma actually is. So can we sort of clear that up? Yeah, of course. Um, it's a brilliant question. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll quote the brilliant Peter Levine here, who's who is one of the great researchers and healers of our time. And and he says that trauma is so common that we don't even recognise it. It's like fish don't even recognise the water that they're swimming in because they're, even though they're surrounded by it. So it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's very prevalent. We just don't see it. We don't recognise it. So trauma is really common. It's much more common than we choose to believe ourselves. It's really very present and very pervasive in the world that we live in today. And I would describe trauma, this is a short answer, but it's a deep question. So if it's okay, okay I'd actually yeah. like to spend a bit of time answering this, if that's okay. all right. Um, no, so that's fine, you go ahead. Yeah. Me. So I've got, there's two answers. There's a short one and a much longer one. Okay. So I'll give you the short one. And the short one is that trauma isn't what happened to you. Trauma is what happens inside of you as a result of what happened to you. Okay. So I'll say that again to get your head round. So trauma isn't what happened to you. So it's not the tsunami, the abuse. It's not the the war zone. It's not that trauma. It's that that's horrible. Those yeah. things are, are awful. But trauma is what happens inside of you as a result of those experiences. So it's more like the feeling than the event. Yeah, it's the it, it's the aftermath, right? So it's um. It's not the physical abuse or the tsunami. It's what happens inside of you. And, 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 and that's really, really key to get. Uh, I think that once, once you've got that, it, it changes the way that you look at trauma. Yeah. And, and, and here's the clincher as well, that we're much more likely to develop trauma wound because it is a wounding mm-hmm. when we go through that experience in the absence of a caring witness. Okay. So we go through an experience and we're alone with it. Yeah. Um, we have nobody to talk to because either there literally isn't someone there or mm-hmm. there isn't someone who can be there for us. Or we don't want to talk to anyone because we don't want to hurt that person with our experience. OK, right? so that's a key point. Trauma occurs it's much more prevalent. You get that wounding because you've been left alone with that horrible experience. So, yeah, a stressful <clears throat> experience then becomes traumatic. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a lot right. of sense, actually. Right. And it's also important to recognise that not all stress is traumatic. And as one of my teachers says, all trauma is stressful, but yeah. not all stress is traumatic. Yeah, that's a really clever saying. Yeah, and that's a big difference. So, so that's the short answer, God. <laughs> yeah, so you're sort of saying like different events might impact different people differently. So you might find one person finds an event more traumatic than someone else who it might not really affect that much depending on how you internally carry that and I love the fact that you've used that word internal because Mm. very much so if we if we don't talk about it that experience we tend to internalize it and that's when you're you're much more likely to get that traumatic wounding right yeah so good I'm glad that landed so if anyone wants to fast forward here and get over the long answer and you want to just back (laughs) the short one I'm sure they don't 
Sure. But if um if, if it's okay and you want to just hold on, listeners, um, whoever yeah. you are, bear with me because I've got three points to make here and the, the third one's a goodie. The first point is what, what trauma actually means. On the one hand, trauma is actually really thrown around quite a bit, that word, right? And and we can use it quite loosely and a bit promiscuously. Okay. Uh, and I say that with a smile on my face because I've done it myself. You know, we can often refer to maybe things that are a bit unpleasant or stressful as traumatic, but actually they're not traumatic. They're, they're unpleasant, but they're not more necessarily traumatic. Yeah. And I'll give you a personal example. Bless her, I hope she doesn't listen to this. But my daughter, who's 14, that can be traumatic. Joking. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, my 14-year-old daughter absolutely hates French. She yeah. has everything to do with French lessons. I won't go into details about why that is now. But she'll often come home from school, if she's had a French lesson, and say, I'm so traumatised, Mum. I'm so traumatised. <laughs> I had her. French today and my, tra- my French teachers just really traumatised me. And she put on this, like, affected voice. Now, I know she's not traumatised. She's talking to me, first of all, right? She's not yeah. alone with it, right? Let's just be clear about that. So... I get that she's not had a great time. She really does not like French and she's being forced to do it. But it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. And importantly, she talks to me. So she's not traumatised. Yes, she's had a difficult experience, but she's not traumatised. So it's not the same thing. A difficult no. experience in her French lesson is not traumatising. Okay. <laughs> now, on the other hand, right, and I'm sure we can all recognise that story ourselves or especially yeah. for teenagers. <laughs> Now, on the other hand, we've got the complete polar opposite that that it can be, on one hand, it can be really thrown around promiscuously. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and sadly, this is where it really matters, like in the health and medical world, world trauma really isn't understood or acknowledged anywhere near as much as it should be. It's getting better, but yeah. very often trauma is is very much overlooked. And, and, I, and that's quite... Um, that's quite that's quite sad. So if I could just again share a little story, love a yeah, story, of course. yeah, uh, that again people might be able to relate to that involves me, and uh, it involves, and I think this is a fairly common issue that you know, about eight years ago I was diagnosed with IBS or inflammatory bowel syndrome, right? And okay. that's, a, that's an autoimmune disease or a condition that that causes all kinds of unusual things in the bottom area, Carla. So let's yeah. let's just leave it there. Those who know, yeah, they know. You know, um, those who don't, I'll, I'll leave it to you to read up on. But essentially, this IBS experience, I had to see a lot, an awful lot of doctors, and I had an awful lot of tests, an awful lot of MRI scans, and um, abdominal scans, and poop wow. tests, blood tests, and checks for cancer. And this went on for like six to twelve months. I was okay. like some kind of medical phenomenon, Carla. And and the, the longer it went on for, the longer people couldn't give me an answer, the scarier it got. And so, of course, yeah, I can imagine. the worse it got for me because this is linked to stress. So I was put on all kinds of dairy-free diets, gluten-free diets, uh, taste-free diets, take this medication, nothing worked. Mm-hmm. But during that time, when I was seeing specialists in gastroenterology, so not just doctors, not just deep, I say just, GPs do an amazing job. But I was seeing specialists work with the gut. Okay. And you know how many people ask me about my trauma or my childhood experiences? No. Anyone talk to me about stress or trauma? I none. don't think any did, no. For 12 months, no, not one. Now, I, that's concerning. Which is worrying to do with the stomach because that isn't, yes. am, am I right in saying that's quite common for people to have, I also sometimes get IBS, probably by the sounds of it, I maybe haven't had it quite as bad as you, but like, it's not a competition. I, well, it's no, okay. I'll let you win that no, one. <laughs> I've never had to really sort of 
go past just seeing my GP once or twice about it. But yeah. I know that in the run up to big things in my life, like when I used to be a dance teacher, when we had our show coming up, it would definitely play me up two two weeks beforehand in the run up right. to the show and then it would sort of change but after the show I would also have it as well it's agony it, it really hurts it really yeah. hurts and it does mess with your life because you have to be careful what you're doing when you're doing it where you're doing it da, 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 da. and it's it's uncomfortable when it's something you shouldn't have to deal with but to anyone yeah. who I've spoken to who suffers with IBS several members of my family do as well there's right. always around stressful times and um, times of anxiety or times of you know looking forward to things maybe anticipation it's just that change in your sort of mood and your vibe it, that is kind of it seems to yeah. be pretty much interlinked and so you think that someone in that profession would talk about it but no maybe it's just that was just my experience maybe there are people out there who have had a more positive experience but yeah I mean in that six 12 months I probably cost the NHS quite a lot of money um but and it's worrying that no one really spoke to me about that because IBS is very much caused by emotional stress yeah and, and it's very often linked back to childhood trauma like I see what, see what you're saying about how it comes up in the now mm-hmm. but this is the thing about trauma it shows the past trauma show up in the present when we have a triggering right okay and, it, and it's very much an overwhelmed about an overwhelmed nervous system and I'm certainly not bashing the doctors that I saw they did an incredible job and under very challenging conditions yeah. certain one wants what places with them they're marvelous people but yeah. sadly many doctors out there just aren't trained to deal with the link between mind and body in the way that we're talking about it here just today right yeah so with trauma on the one hand we've got people going overboard and accusing french teachers of tra- french teachers of traumatizing <laughs> them and then on the other hand we've got this medical profession not giving it anywhere near as much attention as it needs mm-hmm. so polar opposites and this is why it's so important that I give this longer answer today so that we can understand it and deal with it correctly. Right. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Second thing, but there's three points that are on the second one. Yeah. Is what I really want to explain is what trauma actually means. And as we said earlier, trauma is not what happens to us, trauma is what happens inside of us. And the word trauma actually comes from the Greek word that means wound. Right. So it's a wound. It's a wound that leaves a scar or an imprint on your psyche and your nervous system in your body, which can show up later. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you may not even notice at that point in early childhood that you've been wounded because that experience might be normal. And when mm-hmm. we normalize the abnormal, that's when it's a problem. Okay. Um, we'll leave that there for now, but it can show up later when we're triggered. So trauma in a basic, basic sense, and this is very basic, is a wound And if you consider what a physical wound is, if that physical wound isn't healed and instead it's ignored and left open, when someone touches that wound, bloody painful. Sorry, I said. Mm. No, you're allowed to say it's fine. Getting into this now, it really hurts if it's poked. Yeah, So just imagine, Carla, if you had, I don't know, a, a physical wound on your chest, right? Yeah. And it's been there for years and it's been left open. And then I come along with my big fat finger (laughs) <laughs> literally poke it literally yeah poke it. yeah How i'm not painful. gonna be impressed and it's gonna hurt yeah it's gonna really hurt and very possibly it might hurt even more than it did when that first that wound was first inflicted yeah and that's how trauma feels that's how trauma feels when we get poked later on in life we get blown away by that pain and we don't really understand why what's happening and very mm-hmm. often when i speak to people and we understand where it came from they'll say to me but 
it was fine back then. I didn't feel that pain. And that's not uncommon. And it festers and it festers and it's not spoken about and it's left and it it's still raw and painful. And when we talk about being poked, that poking that wound, that is what we refer to as being triggered. And that's another word that gets thrown around an awful lot more now, which yeah. is great. Um, but that's what it means to be triggered when you are poking an old wound that was created much earlier on in life. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, yes. if we stay with the wound thing for a minute, now wounds can be left open, but they can also scar and heal over slightly. And here's the set, here's the thing about scars. They have many, many features. They can be rigid, so they're not flexible. Mm-hmm. And similarly, traumatised people can tend to be quite rigid when they experience something scary and they yeah. may even be what we describe as stuck in their ways. Yeah. Right. So if you live yeah, with someone definitely. or you experience that yourself, maybe yeah. just take a step back and think, okay, I am a bit rigid and unflexible, right? Maybe there's something, I'm not saying there is, <laughs> goodness me, but maybe yeah, just take a step maybe. back and recognise that there might be something there. And scars also don't grow, right? They stay the same size when they were, when they were inflicted, when you might have been two or three. So the traumatised person, both meek and shaking, um, okay. <laughs> often gets emotionally stuck and so the, both the emotional stuckness and the rigidity can be I say can can be signs of trauma and that can be very difficult especially within relationships yeah say you want to know who you are and what what your past actually was to you get into a relationship and you'll find Okay, the other thing about scars is scars don't have nerve endings. It's turning into like a medical lecture now, isn't it? Yeah. So you don't feel anything. You don't feel anything under the scar. And there's a numbness, and a numbness is a sign of trauma as well. So traumatised people will often find it difficult to feel emotions, mm-hmm. right? And you might live with someone like that. And you're like, what's wrong with you? You're not showing me any emotions. It's like... It's funny you say that because I've had people say that to me in the past, not not in my wow. current relationship, but in, okay. in past relationships, I've had people say that, that at the end of relationships when it's over and someone said, oh, aren't you even upset? And I'm just standing there looking at them like thinking, well, I don't know what to think. I've got all the feelings. I've got all the feelings and I don't know which one to let out and I don't know what to yeah. say to you and it's not working and it's over. What, what more is there to say? And it's it's not that I yeah. don't, it's not that I have no feelings, but I've definitely had different people say that to me at different times in my life because I don't know what to I don't know what to express I don't know which one to pick <laughs> and if you're feeling all the feelings at the same time that can be incredibly overwhelming so the yeah. body has an ability to to check out yeah to numb out right yeah, I definitely know which that is a, a protective behavior um mm. and it's brilliant that we can do that but that could be what's going on there for you right yeah so on the one hand you've got this raw painful wound that if it's poked is really blimmin painful and on the other hand we've got this rigidity and this emotional stuckness and numbness and it's 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 blimmin awful car <laughs> yeah and it's really really common it's okay. really common and I think this is where <laughs> compassion is really important because it's very easy and I put my hand up here and I've done this many times and still sometimes do even though I know the importance of compassion that when we're faced with someone who's showing us all of this that I've just described, it can be really uncomfortable. So we can mm. start getting angry with them almost. Yeah. But actually, if we can just take a step back and recognise this actually could be something really deep that's coming up for them in the present, but it's from the past, from mm-hmm. a traumatic experience, then we have compassion. Then suddenly compassion walks into the room. 
Yeah. Right. And actually, I wasn't going to share this, but I think it's a really lovely little, shall we say, story. Yeah. It's a, it can, no, I'll, just, I'll just add something in before I get to my third very good point. Yeah. If you imagine, and, and everyone who's listening now, um, if you just imagine now, close your eyes or lower your gaze and imagine that you're in a, you're standing in a field, right? And it's a lovely green grassy field and it's a lovely warm day and you look across the field and you see a dog and you're a dog lover. So how do you feel when you see the dog? You probably feel happy. You feel the emotion of happiness because yeah. you see the dog, right? So you walk over to the dog because you're feeling happy and you want to give it a stroke. But as you go to the dog, Suddenly it snarls and it snaps its teeth at you and it bears its, it shows its teeth and bears its lip. You know, it, it, it's, 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 it's having a go. This is not the dog that you thought was nice and you were happy to see. How do you feel as it tries to bite you as you go to stroke it? What, what, what emotion comes up for you? For me? Yeah. I, I just want to jump back. I'll be like shocked. Yeah, because you're scared. Yeah. Right. You're feeling scared. So your body. Because yeah, I was going to go and fuss it and then it Absolutely. went for me. So you're going to jump back a bit. So you were happy. Now you're scared. You might even be feeling a bit angry because you've walked all across, way across this field to stroke the dog. It's now biting you. But as you turn away because you wanted to protect yourself, you notice that the dog's foot is caught in a trap. Right. OK. How do you feel now? A bit guilty for starting to walk away. <laughs> you're guilty. You've got, suddenly, you like, oh, I should have seen that. I should have realised. I should have. I should have realised. I should have seen that. I want to help. So yeah. as soon as we know that someone is stuck and their foot is caught in a trap, metaphorically speaking, immediately compassion comes in, and then we can be with the person instead yeah. of working against them and shouting at them and losing our patience. And I want to say this really clearly: we all go there, and I'm not perfect. By yeah. any stretch of the imagination, but if you can understand the pain underneath someone's appearance that they present to the world, then you can have more compassion, and that's what we need in the world. Yeah, so that's something I wasn't going to say. Okay, no, but, but it's just important. A little added extra. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice. It is a nice story to get people yeah. thinking, though, because and, and, sometimes and we so, don't you know, take time to look, do we? We don't take the time to. No, and that's not, and we're not we're not blaming. We're not pointing no. fingers. We're just saying that. We're all humans and we all make mistakes, right? Of course, that's just, yeah. That's just, let's just put that out there. The third point, and this is shorter, and it is the good news. Okay. And it really is good news, is that because trauma isn't what happened to you, so it's not the abuse, the war, the weather disaster or anything like that, but instead it's the wounding that mm -hmm. happened inside of you, that means you can heal the wound. Mm -hmm. You can heal that whenever. It's never, ever too late. So if anyone is listening to this and she can talk a lot, but yeah, it makes an awful lot of sense. It's never too late. You can you can't get in a in a clever car and go back in time no. and change the past. You can't do no. that. But you can heal that wound. And and I can't stress that enough that it, it really is um a wound that, that can be healed whenever at whatever stage of life you're in. Okay, so if you was gonna talk to someone about a trauma that they may have had in their really early ages maybe like not to one sort of in infant ages can you tell us a bit about that because i know that you know you look back to right at the beginning when you talk to your your clients yeah yeah sure and i mean let's be clear trauma and these horrible experiences are not age specific right so no. they can occur at any time and in fact yeah you know from from day one and and sadly you know that that can occur with with neglect and um and we 
so let's just yeah let, let's just leave that there otherwise it might get a bit heavy if we're talking about you know young children or to one so trauma can okay. occur at any time of life um, and it can be caused by a range of experiences but a common one that comes up for me that I see yeah. with my clients was specifically from this young age that you're talking about without yeah. wanting to go into stuff that's maybe a little bit too sad to talk about is when mothers are advised to in an attempt to help babies sleep their children experience the crying out and I have clients that have come to me with extreme high anxiety and we've managed to trace it back to some people not very often this happens some people can even remember times when they were in a cot and crying and nobody can blimey yeah. How do you how how does yeah. that work? How do you people get to remember that? Father? I just want to just highlight something. Being, yeah, I certainly can't go back there. I can't no. go back to to one. It's not possible for me, and it's highly unusual. But I have worked with people who, because trauma can be felt within the body, mm-hmm. they feel that sensation within their body, and we use somatic therapies, of which CI is a somatic therapy. They can experience it again. So that's the wounding coming up. Right, so okay. the crying out method is, I think it's one that, let's be clear as well, when mothers have done it, it's because they have good intentions, right? It's not yeah, yeah. Everyone hurt. was told to do it. It was in all the baby books. Yeah, that, that yeah it's not an attempt to hurt. It's And it's it's usually done in an attempt to create harmony to help the child not to cry, right? So I'm yeah. certainly not pointing fingers here. No. Uh, not at all. But what I can do is just share what I've learned from working with adults today. Mm-hmm whose parents did use that method maybe in the 80s, 90s, and some people still do because what we tend to do as parents is pass on the the advice that we were given that worked. Yeah, of course, yeah, because generations. Because the method does work, but I've come to believe that it's harmful to infant development and to also child's long-term emotional health because I have worked with adults who have managed, as I said, to recall those memories, and, and that that is quite incredible. Now, Yeah, it's amazing. Of course, most people cannot consciously recall what they've learned in that first year of life. Of course, it's very un- it's very uncommon because the brain structures that store that memory are just not developed yet, right? But no. research does show that human beings have a far more powerful memory system imprinted in their nervous systems. Okay. So you can't just think about memory and think about the brain. We have to think about the nervous system that runs through the body as well. And these emotional memories can last a lifetime and can serve as a template for how we perceive the world and how we react to things much later on in life. So if you yourself have ever had an experience where you've had a big reaction to something and you can't quite explain why, it might be due, it might, I'm not saying it is, but it might be due to an experience much earlier on in life. And as um, there's a psychologist called Dr. Daniel, I think he's, I think you pronounce his name, Skakta. And he's written that this memory is active when people are influenced by past experience without awareness of why they're remembering or why they're recalling. I was going to say, I have heard of people sort of recalling memories that they've sort of forgotten in the past with sort of things like hypnotherapy or like psychedelic drug therapy as well and things like that. I know obviously we can't, you know, not licensed over here to do the psychedelics like they are in some countries, but um, is that something else that people to remember that far back or... Have you heard of anything like that before? Yeah, absolutely. Um, clinical hypnotherapy is something that I do use from time to time um, when it's necessary and people can go back and recall and definitely things like you know the psychedelics like MDMA and ayahuasca. In fact, even Gabor, um, yeah. who has experienced ayahuasca therapy himself, talks about he, he can remember 
um, or recall the feelings of being in a cot and crying when wow. he was very, very young. And that came up. I think actually that was his experience with MDMA, I think. So, so that, yeah, it's, it's amazing how the brain it, is it so is complicated, amazing. isn't it? It is amazing. Uh, is it okay if I just say something about the crying out method? Just yeah, of to, course. Just to finish, you know, what the baby is learning, because it, you know, as I said, it, it is, it does work. You know, it does, after about a week, the baby will just stop crying. Mm-hmm. But it's not that the baby has learned a lesson. The baby, what the baby has learned is, I'm giving up. Mm. What's the point? I'm not important. Right? Mm. And that's, it's great for the exhausted parents who are now able to sleep, but for the baby who's there and experiencing that wounding and they're on their own and they clearly can't speak about it, then you can understand how traumatising that can be and that there is that wound that can show up later on in life. Yeah, so from what you're saying, it's sort of what the impact is that the baby realises whether they cry or not, no one's coming. So Imagine that. Imagine you're crying Hmm. And your partner's downstairs and you're crying. Now, we cry because we want people to come to us, we want to be connected with. That's why we cry. And also to give us relief. Mm. So this baby is in this really stressful situation, wanting connection, wanting to be picked up, wanting to be held, wanting to know that to attach to the parent, which is really important um, in childhood development. And 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 it's not only awful and traumatising for the baby, it's awful for the parent. I mean, I've known of friends who mm-hmm. have literally, because they've been advised to do it, you know, and it goes against every part of their being. Their body's crying out. They want to go to the baby. I know people that have stood in the shower with their hands over their ears with the music up in a bid to stop hearing the crying because it's so painful for them. Yeah, which would imply that it's the natural thing to do if you're feeling that much. So listen um, to your body is the message. Yeah, if, if you're feeling that much pain resisting. Yeah, then, but it's just awful because, like you say, it was such a recommended thing to do it's it's yeah. something that people have just thought oh that's the expert saying this let's do it so there's no blame or shame in anything that anyone's done not from at all you're saying at all it's just something was recommended that probably shouldn't have been recommended at but the something's just popped up in my head carla if you know if we look at society we live in it's so overwhelming we have so much to do don't we we have to work we have to be parents we have to do there's we have a lot of respect i'm not going to list them all out everyone will have their own responsibilities and it can be really really tough if mums and i'm not saying that mums are only here to be Mm mums not at all we are all allowed to have our own careers and i certainly have had many but if we were only if we were allowed to just really, really just focus upon that baby and not worry about all the other things that we have. Yeah. To do, yeah, of course. Would we even worry about sleeping at night or would we sleep during the day when, you know, it's all the expectations in society and all the extra demands that get in the way. Mm-hmm. And that causes stress. So I, again, I, it's not about blaming people. It's about no. really blaming the culture and society that we live in because it's just too demanding and yeah because the bills are coming in every horrendous. day you feel like you need to exactly. get back to work people are saying you need to get your kids out of socializing so people ship them off to play group and then they go to work and they're doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing yeah. and the things that are expected to be doing but in an ideal world as such where there were no responsibilities where there were no pressures or anything sort of you know beaten at the door that you have to deal with yeah. then like you say it never occurred to me just just sleep yeah. at this time instead and, or just do and that also instead. back in the day you know uh, when we were running around in loincloths and living in tents and things like that we weren't the only person bringing up the child it was a village who was helping yeah. to bring up the child with us right Mums, and now it's just like nans. okay 
mum and dad, dad goes to work. I'm not being sexist, but that is a general thing of what happens. Um, or worse still, mum is single mum and she's got to work. I mean, come on. And we have no village to help. That's no. as well, especially if we have no one to talk to about it. Right? And that makes sense. And so do you think if these sorts of things sort of start the impact of early life, obviously, then as life goes on for the baby, other things in life affect it, the way they internalise it, the way they react, move on. Da, 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 da. Do you think that generationally, if that's a word, we're going to start moving towards more sort of mental health problems because these pressures have increased over time and they still keep increasing. Like, for example, even the news, we see the news every day now. Back in back in decades ago, they didn't have the TVs, they didn't have the news on every day. You didn't hear about the ins and outs of everything from all over the world. There's just more and more negativity being fired at you all the time from everywhere. And if it's not negative, it's pressure or it's stress or it's you know, all these things. And it doesn't seem to be getting any easier, does it? So yeah. do you think that down the generations, this sort of inevitably is the way that we're headed? Yeah, I mean, look, I can only talk from my own perspective and my own opinion here, but I, I think life is becoming more stressful and we definitely can see the, the fallout of that and people struggling more and more. But let's be positive for a minute. We're also seeing that people are becoming much more aware. Yes, there is right? that. And yeah, actually yeah, there's no, so totally. much more support now. And I know you and I were talking offline a minute ago and you were saying that you do you, you have self-care around the news. Yeah, uh, I do. Yeah, I have to really take the what you, you can't what the news says, but no. you can control your interaction with it because the news isn't mm. news, the news is bad news. Yeah. So we have a responsibility to ourselves to make sure that we are treating ourselves with self-care to not become overwhelmed. And I suppose the rise of sort of like the awareness around mental health, the, you know, the help that can be offered and the awareness exactly. that the children have now of, oh, I need to go and have some downtime or I need to do this or... Teach them how to regulate their emotions, I think. But, we, yeah, we, that's it. We're regulate learning that more emotions. and more in, in schools now as well, yeah. So um, there is that to the other side of the battle where hopefully things sort of will turn ahead on themselves and start sort of working their way back up again, I suppose. I believe in human beings... I have to say yeah. and having worked with so many um and helping them through i mean i've worked with some people who most people in the world would say are horrendous people but actually mm -hmm. they just only were, did the horrendous things they did because they were in in pain themselves right so um i do believe I, I have compassion for all human beings and i do believe in the ability of humans to be able to help us get out of this should we say mess or pickle that we're in as, as, yeah. as a world right now but but it's going to take a lot of time and, like, yeah. take a lot. and i don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime I'm, well, I'm you're well obviously old. helping I'm well people old, on their Carla. way. Yeah, you're yeah. part of it though, because you're helping people. So yeah, yeah and we all we all can. We all can mm. help people. What is being connected with your authentic self? And why is it important to our mental health and to be able to connect with it? Okay. So sometimes when people think about the self, it's very much about spiritual it has a very spiritual meaning. Uh, for me, uh the way I talk about the authentic self is talking about connection to our authentic feelings like sadness, anger, fear, joy, guilt, shame, and really being able to recognize and say, this is what I am feeling because feelings are there to be felt. Mm -hmm. That's why they're called feelings, right? Yeah. So I'm talking about with the self, I'm talking about being connected to our emotions, about being connected to our gut feelings. And in trauma, if we experience it earlier in life, we actually lose connection to our feelings. 
mm-hmm. or we're given the message that that emotion isn't welcome for example right, if a okay. child gets angry and so yeah. that child then has to push that anger down to maintain connection to the parent and then they lose a sense of self yeah so you in a way you sort of when you talk about that child having a tantrum a lot of situations you think oh it's not appropriate right now Mm. but then like when you was talking earlier about having the dog in the field when you went over it and you realized that it was actually attached to a a leash like it you need to make like is it the same sort of thing where you need to understand what is going on for the child why is exactly why is it really And it's really funny you say the tantrum word, and I've not really thought about this before, so thank you for teaching me, Um, because it's a word that I use, but they're they're not, we describe it as tantrum, but what is it they're actually experiencing? Mm. They're experiencing anger, and that is a normal emotion, and it should be welcome, and they should be able to feel that feeling. But we tend to get uncomfortable when a child shows us their angry emotion, and it can sometimes be because of our own childhood, and that's a thing in itself. But So really... What we're talking about with the self is connecting people to feeling their feel feelings, to feeling their emotions. And and I'm talking about really the small child who, because they're feeling certain emotions, it was unacceptable. There was no space yeah. for it. They lost touch with themselves. So there is no sense of self. And if you've ever spoken to an adult that has had that experience and you say to them things like, well, tell me about you. And they're like, um, I go to work. Yeah. Um, who, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Mm. What do you like? What do you not like? And there can be a real kind of sense of loss. That yeah. They've lost that sense of who they are. So really authenticity and being connected to the sense of self means that we're in touch with our, our emotions and our, and our gut feelings. And we, we're all born with a sense of connection to our needs and authenticity. It's naturally there for all of us. Mm-hmm. Hence why, you know, when a baby cries on day one, then they, they're either hungry or thirsty or they need holding. They're going to let you know because they yeah. are deeply connected to themselves. No one is born disconnected. We have to be connected to our own needs because that our very survival depends upon it. If we don't cry to the parent, they won't know that we need feeding. So it's no. crucial for our existence to be connected to our our own authenticity. And that is really interesting because I've literally never even thought about why do we cry? When you're sad, you just you just cry. It just happens. There's no, I've never really broken it down like that before. But and many people don't try, actually let themselves cry. No. And when you say about crying being a need for something, it kind of is because you wouldn't be upset if you didn't need something, would you? And you never really connect it to being, oh, I need this. You just think I'm sad. But you don't always think, I suppose, beyond you know, why am I sad? Why am I feeling like this? Why am I angry? Yeah. yeah. Crying gives us relief. Crying gives a message. It helps us to, to for example, with babies, as I said, gets the parent to come to them and give them what they need. Um, so we are all de- from birth have to be deeply, deeply connected. Um, and if we lose that sense of self because we're given a message that, for example, and I was told this as a child and my mum mm-hmm. and dad, I know they love me very much, but they told me quite often don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about. Don't cry yeah. or I'll smack you so hard you won't be able to sit down for a week. Ooh. Now, listen to those words. That's, and then, <gasps> so I can't cry, mm. right? And then I go into adulthood and every time I cry, I feel scared about crying because what's going to happen? Unconsciously, this is going on. And I'm not alone with that. 
No. There's a clear message. Do not cry. You are not welcome here if you cry. Now, why does the parent say that? It's not because they're being horrible. And my gosh, my parents weren't being horrible to me. They were saying don't cry because they're uncomfortable with the crying. And they don't want to see you sad. They don't want to see yeah. you upset. Yeah. So instead mm -hmm. of saying, okay, you know, okay, I can see you're sad. Tell me about that. What do you, what do you, what do you tell me about how that feels for you? Or tell me what's happening for you? What's, what are you experiencing right now? And being with them and sitting next to them and holding their hand and giving them space to share. That's regulation. That's regulating the child. What we say is, no, don't. Don't be here with your anger. Don't be here with your tears. I'm not, I'm not available to you when you show up like that. And the message mm -hmm. the child gets, of course, is I'm not loved if I cry. I'm not loved if I'm angry. So I'm going to push it down. Right. Okay. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because the need for connection is so important. The need for attachment and connection to the parent is critical. So we will push our own authentic needs down and then we lose our sense of self. So... Based on that, when it comes to the clients that you work with who may have problem with addictions, I always see addictions as like a need or something to replace or push down a feeling or to take someone away from where they are. So um, how would you work with someone who has addiction when you're doing your compassionate inquiry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I actually do really love working with people with addiction. Um, and by the way, most of us are addicted to something. Yeah. Let's just put that out there, right? Um, and when you realise how prevalent trauma is, and there's no wonder that we mm. need things to give us a sense of soothing. So I work with clients using compassionate inquiry when, when they are struggling with addictions. That's my go-to. It's not for everyone, but so I don't always use it, but it is my preferred modality. Yeah. Um, and I work with people with addiction to help them understand that all addiction is an attempt to soothe pain. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's almost always linked to childhood trauma. Not always, but very often most of the time. And it's an attempt to deal with the pain that, that the trauma has left, right? And it's our best attempt at soothing. It's like a dummy for the child. It's, a, it's you know, it's, in fact, addiction itself isn't the problem. It's an attempt to solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So then people how... just go, oh, he's a druggie, he's an alky, he's this, and we give all these horrible names to people that are struggling and say, that's the problem. Take the drink away. That's that's it. Fix none. No, because no, quite often they probably just find a different thing that suits them and it exactly. just moves one onto often... the next, onto the next. And then you will often find someone who is, let's say, struggling with alcohol addiction and they may go to a, and join a program like AA, which is fantastic. But if they just do that and they don't deal with pain, they will pass the alcohol addiction on to maybe chocolate addiction or mm -hmm. it might become addiction to personalities or relationships or anger. It will move on. It will find something else. So addiction is our very best attempt at soothing. It always serves a function and it temporarily deals with the painful effect of trauma. But in the long term, it creates a bigger problem in the long run. So how do you sort of move forward with that? First and foremost, we try and understand what it was that was missing when they, as in, in their childhood, what it was it that they needed. So, and very often it comes down to that relationship, that parental relationship. Not all of the time, it could be friendship issue that they mm -hmm. had as, as a child. But I also help people to understand that there are four things to actually, first of all, understand what addiction is, mm -hmm. right? And for me, addiction is four things. Number one, there's a craving. Yeah. And this could be, I'm not just talking about substances, right? 
or alcohol. I'm talking it could literally be for anything. I'm not really interested in what the addiction is that they have to. Okay. It could be heroin. It could be sex. It could be pornography. It could be, it could be uh, the gym. It could be drugs. Yeah. It could be alcohol. It doesn't matter to me. So number one, there is a craving for whatever that thing is they're using. Number mm -hmm. two, it provides temporary relief or pleasure. Number three, it has long-term consequences. And then number four, and this is the big one, even though you know that the short-term relief is only short and in the long run, it's going to hurt you, your bank balance, your relationships, your life, your job, uh, your, your sense of who you are, despite all of that, number four, you can't give it up. Yeah. That's addiction. So if anyone is listening to this and they maybe, you know, can't stop eating chocolate cake, for example, let's take something mm -hmm. a bit lighter. Yeah. Um, than, than, than drugs and alcohol. If you get wake up in the morning and you're like, no, I'm not going to eat the chocolate cake today. But by the end of the day, you've eaten six pieces of chocolate cake. But yeah. you know it's not good for you. And you know tomorrow you're going to wake up feeling guilty, but yet you're still doing it. That's an yeah. addiction. Mm -hmm. It's an addiction. So and there's a lot of people out there that will understand what I'm saying there. Yeah, of if course. you know that it's not good for you, but you find it difficult to stop, but you can, well, then that's just a bad habit. But if you continually do in that same cycle, that is an addiction. So an addiction is craving, pleasure or relief, negative consequences, and then number four, the inability to give it up, irrespective of what it's doing to you or your relationships. So keep that okay. in mind. Most yeah. people are addicted to something. Phone use is another one. My gosh. Oh, Yeah everyone's got i think most people have got that one haven't they in this day and age people with their phones on them all the time so take a step back when you find yourself because sometimes it's really unconscious that you, you're mm -hmm. sitting there you're working and then all of a sudden you've got your phone in your hand what is it that's actually really going on for you just take a step back what is it that you're experiencing um you know that check in with your emotions what we do with ci is really help people to be with their physical sensations in their body mm-hmm heart racing, tummy turning, arms feeling shaky, dry mouth, headache, to sit with that and allow it and then to understand what is the emotion behind this. Is it sadness? Is it fear? Okay, And then accept that you are feeling one of these emotions. And that in itself, given that most of the time we spend our time pushing our emotions down, that in itself can be very, 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 very powerful to say, okay, okay I am feeling scared. I'm feeling scared right now and letting it be just say, okay, I'm feeling scared. And how familiar is this to me? How far back does this go? This feeling is my heart racing, my tummy in knots and I can't breathe. How far back does this go? Oh, I remember mm -hmm. when I was on the naughty step when I was four years old and my mum told me I, I couldn't, you know, X, Y, Z. So that's how we do it. I'm just using a really simple yeah. explanation there. And then yeah. what we do is we help to work through that and nurture that inner child nurture the child that got the message that they weren't welcome as they were and then we get back that sense of self that sense of identity of who they really are in so that they don't have to go and find it in something external to themselves to give them an internal feeling that's more pleasant or relieving so, yeah so it's recognizing what you're feeling absolutely where you're feeling it how long you've been feeling it for and dealing with where it stemmed from dealing with the original trauma wound yeah, it's all joining up together and making a lot of sense. Yeah. No, I like that answer. Yeah. Um, it's not the, the alcohol isn't the problem. People can drink alcohol without a problem. People can even take heroin without I mean, I wouldn't advise yeah. it. Yeah, it's, I've known. I'm not people. advising it, to be clear. 
but you can you can use the gym you can use alcohol uh, you know actually the word spirit do you know what it means mm, no where it comes from the words you know like a vodka and gin and all the, all the spirits just something to lift you up or something is well it? actually because it was they were originally used to help people connect to the spirits right okay people that have passed right so you know so it was spirits were actually created to create this connection this togetherness so drinking in itself isn't the problem the wound is the problem of why we need to drink Mm. yeah okay so the 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 problem of the the, that what you're using isn't the problem it's the wound underneath it that's the problem yeah so it doesn't really matter whether it's getting home and needing that well glass or bottle of wine when you finish work it's not how many fags you smoke throughout the day and it's it's not even gambling all these things come down to the same process of healing that and sometimes people do use certain things to Mm self-medicate um so for example people with adhd will often use uh, weed or alcohol to reduce the hyperactivity in the mind mm-hmm. um, people with depression will often use cocaine it's because it boosts serotonin and dopamine sure you yeah. know so that so there are people out there that might be self-medicating with certain things but at the at the detriment of their long-term health yeah no that's really interesting so all these things need compassion not a jail sentence why we put people in prison for taking drugs i will never know because that just creates more isolation which is what the problem is in the first place. They were isolated and they were... Yeah, and you can see that looking at the statistics across the countries. I mean, I'm not a very statistically minded person. I don't have them to ream off the top of my head. But I know that certain countries in Europe that have experimented with like different how they accept different drugs and legalities and showing that actually the worst thing you can do is suppress everything because that's how people get out of control and get into trouble because nobody's yeah. monitoring anything nobody's supporting anyone through anything everyone's just hiding away and doing what they do to help themselves behind closed doors and that's not yeah. helping anyone is it like you say suppressing emotions if i could just squeeze hiding one little up. thing in there yeah, as well sorry. That, uh, yeah. no i mean it's great that we're having this this conversation so hopefully even if one person hears it and makes a change for them that's great right but mm. addiction is not a choice no okay addiction is not a choice which is how the the legal system looks at it nobody wakes up in the morning and says i'm going to sit and watch porn all day or smoke weed or take no. heroin because that's a really bloody good idea for me to lose my sense of self even further. Nobody wakes up. <laughs> no, and does of that, course not. Right? They wake up and they experience pain. Maybe physical pain can be, but very often emotional pain and a sense of loss and a sense of despair. And then they look for something that is going to give them a break. From them. Mm. That's the issue. That's the you know, that's addiction. People get stuck in that cycle. And then and we're criminalizing people and putting them in prison for wanting to find peace. Oh, that's I, no, don't get me started on that. It <laughs> it's, is, it's, it's really, right no, it is really sort of like the way that society sees addiction does really need to change because, like you say, I mean, I've, I've got friends, people close to me who have suffered with addiction, and like you say, absolutely none of them would ever have started out thinking oh I want to do this all the time every day la 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 it's not it doesn't work like that it is something that they try once might make them feel a bit better maybe try it once a week when they're in this situation then it develops a little bit more and so oh I, I want to feel better the rest of the time and then before you know it and before they know it and before anyone else sees it coming it's turned into an addiction but just because that 
particular thing made them feel better in that particular moment. Everything like that is, is, a, is a Recovery is absolutely available. To recover something means to go and find something. And what we're doing with recovery is we're helping people go and find their true sense of self. We're helping go and find out who it is they really are. Um, and take away all of the personality traits and the coping mechanisms that they've developed to hide that, or, uh, that covers, not hide, to cover that sense of self. It's there. You haven't lost it. That authentic self is there. And how can you how can you find that when it's been locked away for so long? I know that sounds probably sounds like a bit of a weird question, but therapy isn't isn't the only way, right? There, I mean, it's very good, and you can do therapy one to one, but you can also do group work, which is why things like you know AA or an NA like Narcotics Anonymous are really good. But people can also find with find way out through faith, used in a healthy way. Uh, they can also use it through find themselves through things like somatic movements, like yoga. For example, um, and meditation and all of these things combined, I think actually, you know, the ideal is that you do work on yourself one to one. You, you seek help and support and understanding from people who similar like minded people who understand what you're going through. You do things, you, you move your body and you find something like yoga, which helps to give you a sense of empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, and then also you send, spend time every day just quietening your mind with 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 meditation. And I think so, those those four things are really key. So sort of removing the noise as such, as sort of like investigating within yourself, obviously your experiences, everything to do with you, but then also removing all of sort of the noise and concentrating on removing everything else and coming back yeah. to what's how, in your how head, often, I suppose. How, if you're honest, mm -hmm. how often do you actually sit with yourself and Never. check in with yourself? Hardly ever. And notice how you're feeling in your body? How often do you do Well, I suppose sometimes because in the salon, when you're in there one-to-one -one with the dog, sometimes you can't get out of your own bloody head. But a lot of the times I don't really I have other things that go in through my head, well, not see, necessarily finding is... the root of it. It's just, it's just noise, isn't it? It's just. And this is, so you just said you find it, you have to be in your head, did you say? Yeah. Some, if I go in my head, sometimes you can get stuck in your head, can't you? Do you okay. know what I mean? It so gets, actually so... what we're saying it's quite the opposite. We're wanting to do is actually get out of your head and into mm. your body. Yeah. Don't don't get loiter and start placing too much emphasis on the stories that are in your head and the beliefs mm. that are running around about you. Actually, connect to your body. Connect to your body and your phys and your emotions within your body, and be with that, and allow yourself to feel whatever it is you're feeling. That's a that's a that's a game changer. Right. Okay. I find it all so interesting. I feel like I'm not really saying a lot in this interview, but I'm just processing it all and just trying to sort of like understand and sort of get my head around it because it's uh, it is really interesting. Um, yeah. So when people are physically or mentally ill, we prescribe the appropriate drug for the job. But how do you feel that talking therapy helps a patient alongside the drugs? So I would flip it actually, and talk about it the other way around, that medication can help alongside therapy. Therapy can help alongside medication. So the right medication at the right time for somebody who is struggling is life-saving. So I'm definitely not anti-medication. It, it, where it needs to be taken, it is can change lives. Mm -hmm. um, so just to be clear about that. But I believe that medicating behaviours such as depression or high anxiety or bipolar disorder these things without actually understanding the root cause and not healing that will just place a temporary dressing on the issue 
So it's a bit like putting a bandage on a broken leg. It will support for a period of time until you get used to that feeling and it will help you to cope, but it won't aid healing. And that and healing is, is required if you want freedom from the pain. If freedom from the pain is your goal and you don't just want to live, you want to, you don't just want to survive, rather you want to live, yeah. um, then 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 you need to you need to learn about who it is you are and you do that within therapy. How can people get in touch with you if um they would like to try some compassionate inquiry or any of the the therapies that you offer? Yeah, I mean I'm my website is youcan2therapy.com. So mm-hmm. all the my contact details are there, but you can two therapy is a bit of a weird spelling. It's Y double O K A N T double O you can two. Yeah. Um, all the O's. Uh, so if people want to find me, you can two therapy.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. So uh, yeah, and I'll put all of your details in the show notes as well. So if anyone wants sort of hasn't quite got to the pen and paper in time, just yeah. check the show notes and I'll pop it all in there for you. And, and it, anything... I named it that you can two therapy because it's like literally you can, you know, you can change yeah. and recovery is there it's available to everyone not just the other people yeah no i think that's important actually because it is always easy to think oh well they've done that but i can't do that or yeah. it takes um, courage but it, it, mm. the, the recovery and change is very very possible i see it all the time every day and you help people with a whole array of different topics and things anything trauma related anything sort yeah. of trauma based and... well, absolutely when you think that actually any any emotional what could be perceived as an illness or mental illness such as high anxiety or depression these things always start off in life as an attempt to protect us as a coping mechanism mm-hmm. right they they're not it's not a genetic anomaly as some people would say it's not that you're born with it it's that you've experienced something and you've developed this ability to keep you safe so for example if we look at anxiety yeah well what is it anxious people do constantly looking out for danger <laughs> mm-hmm. you feel like you you look at me i call it the meerkat yeah right if you look at a yeah, meerkat know you know they're standing on tile, top of the pile of poo yeah right looking out constantly left right left right that's what it feels like to have high anxiety mm. and why do people do that why do they develop that tendency to do well it may well be that may well be not always but it may well be that when they were younger they didn't know if they were going to be safe that day. They didn't know what mood mum or dad was going to be in. They didn't know if they were going to be smacked. They didn't know if they were going to get in trouble at school. They didn't know if they were going to be bullied when they went in. So there's mm. a looking out. What does looking out do for you? It protects you from the oncoming danger. So yeah. anxiety is your best attempt at protecting yourself from any oncoming onslaught. So it started off as a way to protect you, but now it's bloody annoying because there is no danger. Yeah, it's so like there's no off the, switch. It's just in- now, now you're the meerkat, not in the wild looking for the lion. Now you're the meerkat of Whipsnade Zoo in an enclosure and the lions are on the other bloody side of Whipsnade. Yeah. You know, there's no danger, but you can't stop doing it because it's in your nervous system. I must look, I must look. You know, it makes so perfect sense that. Anything starts off in life as a way of protecting and coping with a situation that you're in and when you look at it like that you have much more compassion for what you're doing and you work, work with yourself instead of against yourself you know no that really makes a lot of sense thank you for that well thank you so much for coming on today it's really been absolutely so interesting speaking to you it's been an absolute pleasure yeah it's a pleasure no thank you pleasure's all mine and Mika's although she's 
now moved and she's sitting underneath. Well, she's very chilled out, so. She's very chilled. She didn't even bark <laughs> once, bless her, did she? No, she's been a really good girl. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kelly. Um, You're welcome. Lovely yes. to see you. You too. And to um, anyone listening, if you're struggling, help. You're not alone. Help is out there, whether it's with me or anyone else. Just reach out. Reach out. I truly believe yeah. that, that that you can reconnect to the real you. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant note to finish on. So thank you very much. (laughs) You're welcome. Wow, what a conversation. I found everything Kelly had to say absolutely fascinating. I was in a bit of an off mood the morning I spoke to Kelly, about three weeks ago, and she noticed that I wasn't feeling too chirpy and checked that I was okay. We discussed what was going on, and we actually tried a little bit of compassionate therapy. It was really interesting and helpful. It did change my mindset about the reason that I was feeling low that day and how to look at the thing that was making me sad. So again, thank you Kelly from You Can Too Therapy. Over the next few weeks, I have a few wonderful groomers lined up. I'll be back next Friday with Lorraine Mottershead. Make sure you follow and rate the podcast on your chosen platform and get sharing any episodes that you particularly enjoy so more people can find out about it and listen in. See you next Friday and thank you for listening in. Cheerio.